Good evening, everybody. Grab a seat. We're so glad that you're here. We're going to get started. So it's just on. Is it on? No, I'm on. Yes, you are on. There we go. Yeah, there it is. All right. Hey, everyone. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Theology on Tap. My name is Justin Hare. I am one of the priests at St. Philip's Church right there. This is my friend Brian McGreevy. He is also on staff at St. Philip's. Uh, if you stumbled in here and you don't know what this is, this is what's called Theology on Tap. And we're so glad that you're here. What we typically do is we'll have a conversation for about 20 minutes on a, a given topic each night. And uh, during that time, you will see these little pieces of paper lying around the room. You will need this because if you scan the QR code on the top, you can submit any question related to the topic or not related to the topic that you want. Um, few housekeeping items. You'll notice that the stairs are blocked off. They're doing some work upstairs, so unfortunately the roof is, is off limits tonight. Um, what else? We've got... Uh, a few things that we're hoping to do. This has been, first of all, just a blast to do. We've, we've just done this since the summer. We've had a great time every time. Uh, and one of the things that we're hoping to do is not have this be a time that, like, you know, if the topic is, basically, if it, if it rises or falls on a given topic, that's just not going to be what we're hoping for. I think what we want it to be is a time where you can ask anything. And so when we say, like, you can submit any question, we really do hope that it's any question. Obviously, there will be times when maybe something we say in the talk sparks your interest, and you can ask a question about the topic. But really, we hope that this uh, really supersedes any topic that we pick, and it's a time where you can really ask anything. That's why we're here. That's what we really want to talk about. And so to make that better, we commit. We're going to really commit to this. We are going to talk, uh, I think, uh, or answer the question in no more than in a minute or two. I think in the past we've gone four or five minutes, and that's just not... Can't or eight or nine. Or eight or, yeah. So we're going to really try to limit our responses to um, good but succinct responses so that we can get through more of your questions. And uh, so hopefully that'll be a lot of fun and we'll get through some more interesting things. Uh, another plug that I want to make is next Wednesday... There's a special showing of a movie called, what was the movie? The Most Reluctant Convert. The Most Reluctant Convert. It's about C.S. Lewis and his yep. life. It's showing at Palmetto Grand uh, in Mount Pleasant. We're going to go to that, and we would love for you to join us. If you're interested in that, please let us know. I know some of you already have emailed me about that, and we've got you down. Uh, but we're just planning on meeting there and going to at 7 o'clock next Wednesday, Palmetto Grand. Yep. Tonight, we are going to talk about forgiveness. Why are we talking about forgiveness, Brian? Uh, we are talking about forgiveness because it's something that almost everyone deals with at some level in their lives, forgiveness or lack thereof, uh, because there's a lot of hurt and pain in the world and in our lives. But also, and one of the reasons we really wanted to talk about it here, is that I think you can build a case that forgiveness is perhaps one of the most radical and freeing and joyous aspects of the Christian faith and of Jesus' teaching, and that a lot of times people don't really understand what his teaching was about that. So right. being able to unpack that uh, is something that we're very excited about. Yeah. Now, some of you are engaged, and I think I've told this to other engaged couples before, but the biggest skill I think that you can have in a marriage 
is asking and granting forgiveness. And so it, it's not just in a marriage relationship, but any relationship. We, I know we've loved talking about relational dynamics in the past here, but I think that, um, yeah, that's just one of the keys to having healthy relationships. And honestly, just having your own personal health, the buildup of bitterness, unforgiveness, is detrimental to your health. But also, the Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness. Yes, and I think part of the, part of the issue is this starts when we're young, uh, you know, it's the proverbial, the kid that gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar, uh, and uh, he eats the cookie with a smirk on his face, and then the mom comes in, and she's like, you ate a cookie. And he's like, <laughs> and she's like, say you're sorry. And he says, sorry. And then they move on. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of where our culture is in a lot of ways about forgiveness. And one of the things that I usually talk about with couples when we're doing marriage prep is that one of the things that you need to be able to learn to do in marriage, which is very difficult, is to look the other person in the eye, say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. That is really hard to say, Yeah. but it's important. And the scripture, particularly the New Testament and the Gospels are full of teaching about forgiveness. And uh, how many of y'all know the Lord's Prayer by heart? Probably everybody, yeah. yes. Uh, what does it say about forgiveness? Forgive us our, as we, yes. Yes, that was not as robust as I might have hoped, but it was pretty good, it was pretty good. Um, but the idea is that in the middle of the one prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, there's forgiveness of two different kinds right in the center of that prayer. And then Jesus' parables are all about forgiveness, and some specifically, some more implicitly. And then the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest teaching of the Bible, also has a lot to say about forgiveness. Yeah. So it's jam-packed with forgiveness, and I think, by and large, in Christian civilizations, like in the West in particular, it's been heavily influenced by Christianity. The concept of forgiveness has been almost assumed as like a good thing. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting right now in our cultural moment is that we're starting to see more and more of the idea with the rise of like individualism that forgiveness is actually a kind of weakness, and that if you forgive, that's actually like self-loathing and and, and what we need to do is, is just be stronger and firmer and, and really not forgive. And that was one of the reasons why hopefully uh, in our time we'll talk a little bit about when to forgive. Should we always forgive? I think that's a legitimate question now. But how would you define forgiveness if we're just, I mean, stating our terms here? What, what actually is forgiveness? I think there's a lot of confusion about it. Yes. Yeah, so I think that forgiveness uh, in Scripture is an act of will where you choose to set aside and not remember an offense and that you uh, do not allow that offense or that wrong or perceived wrong to fester and become a root of bitterness that you hold against someone, that you let it go. And uh, that is, uh, I think, what Jesus teaches uh, one of his parables about forgiveness, he ends with this sort of chilling 
thing where he says, and that is the way my Heavenly Father will deal with each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Mm. And so uh, that idea of sincere forgiveness, not just the sorry or I forgive you, <laughs> um, but really heartfelt letting go of something and treating that other person um, as a child of God um, who is worthy of your uh, respect and all of that. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I think, um, you know, the economic metaphor, you talked about the Lord's Prayer, but actually in, in the scripture, at least in the ESV translation I looked at today, but the idea is there, there's another word used instead of trespasses. Anybody remember what it is? Forgive us our debts. Yes. That's right. I think that's a helpful metaphor for thinking about forgiveness because if you're like me you probably have student loans all uh, <laughs> all or maybe most of you I don't know but uh, the idea of forgiveness it, it can be illustrated by the idea of like economic forgiveness you know it's the idea that you're not you're not getting um, if your loans were forgiven they're choosing not to enact justice right. in a way which is you know pretty countercultural I think that was the thing in the in the East, a lot of religions and a lot of like shame and honor cultures, it wasn't the idea of God being a judge that was offensive. It was the idea of forgiveness that mm -hmm. was offensive. Because justice was so important. Right. I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that today, but the idea of not getting what you deserve and, and choosing not to um, enact justice, but instead to show mercy yes. is, is part of forgiveness. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's so interesting about that is when you see um, Jesus trying to teach the disciples about this. Peter, um, Peter's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament um, because he, he just is a goofball a lot of the time. And he's trying to like suck up a lot of the time to Jesus. And so one of the times he comes up to Jesus and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? up to seven times, which is more than the law required. So he's expecting Jesus to say, oh, Peter, that's so good. You're being so, like, merciful. Congratulations. And Jesus says to him, no, 70 times seven, which is 490. Jesus does not mean that you keep little tick marks until you get to 490, um, and then you stop forgiving. But what he means is that Forgiveness needs to become a way of life. And then he tells this story about this man who owes this king this huge amount of money. And it's like, in our terms, billions of dollars. No way you could ever pay it back. And so the man and his family are sold into slavery. And the man comes before the master and pleads, saying, please forgive me my debt. Don't send me and my family into slavery. And so the master just forgives his debt. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't need to earn money or serve time in jail. Um, and he is able to go free. He's been given his life back. And then he turns around to somebody that basically owed him five bucks and beats the guy up for not paying him. And then um, the people go back and report to the master what's happened. But Jesus says we should be like that master that forgave that enormous, enormous debt. And Jesus could have told any story he wanted to about forgiveness, and he chose that one. And the guy doesn't pay back. He, the master just chooses to forgive. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, shameless book plug here. Uh, we do love books. We have plenty of books at the table and other actually articles as well. When we're done, feel free to come and check them out. Uh, but this is a book called Bold Love, and he I love the way he puts forgiveness. And he says forgiveness involves three things, one of which when you were alluding to the idea of forgiving from the heart. He says it, it, it first involves a hunger for redemption or restoration. And so the idea of like really longing for wholeness. And, and I think part of that involves like really being sad, no matter how trivial or small it is, that God actually weeps at all wrongdoing. That God longs for wholeness and restoration. And, and therefore, part of forgiveness is longing for that too. It's being affected in your heart the way God's affected by it. But secondly, it's revoking revenge. And I think that's the critical part. It's the internal decision of the will, as you said, to not uh, enact revenge, knowing that God is uh, actually claimed to be the one who's going to be the one who vengeance is, is going to be settled. He's the right. one who's going to bring about vengeance. So it's hungering for wholeness. It's uh, not enacting revenge, but revoking revenge. And then finally, it's, it's giving good gifts. It's actually giving the invitation of the offender to apologize, to, to repent. And that's the big key, the, the difference between forgiveness and, let's say, reconciliation. How would you define those two? Would you say there's a difference between those? Yeah, so I would say forgiveness, like if Justin and I had a huge fight, um, which of course would never We'd happen. We'd never have one of those. Would, should that happen, um, forgiveness would be my, as an act of will, choosing to forgive him, to not hold it against him in any way, um, to wish the best for him, to pray for him. However, if what he had done was to like, this is a really bad metaphor, so I should have picked someone else, but if he had like stolen money out of my desk time and time and time again, um, I could forgive him, but being reconciled to the point that I just left my office open whenever he was around, that would not be something that I would want to do. And so reconciliation might involve having to do all of that. Um, reconciliation often means having the relationship be the way it was before anything happened. And sometimes that is not possible um, because of what's going on. That reminded me of a quote. I got to read this here because the whole money thing, going back to a debt, he says, forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt, but it doesn't lend new money until repentance occurs. Yes. That's really important. So wow, yeah, that's really good. Isn't that good? Forgiveness involves a heart that cancels the debt, but doesn't lend new money until repentance yep. occurs. And I think that's wisdom because oftentimes you'll hear like, you know, just the question, well, when should I forgive? How would you answer that? Should I forgive all the time, like 70 times 7? Um, I, I would say um, we should definitely have a presumption of forgiveness in pretty much every situation. I think that we have been so conditioned by our culture, which is a very narcissistic culture, that we want to hang on to our offenses. We want to hang on to where we've been wronged. We want to blame people. Um, we want to be, in some cases, victims, and that becomes sort of our identity. 
And the problem with that is that it's the perfect reflection of a quotation that's usually attributed to Nelson Mandela. If you've never studied Nelson Mandela's life, I really commend that to you as a study about Christian forgiveness. But Mandela is reputed to have said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills your enemy. And I've been in ministry long enough and counseled enough people to see that that is actually really true. People that refuse to forgive, that hold on to a hurt or a slight or whatever it was, um, and they begin to build their life around that, um, it leads uh, to just agony and a wasted and ruined life. Whereas other people I know who've had truly horrible things done to them that were not their fault, um, who have chosen to forgive, have gone forward from that and lived in freedom because of their radical choice to forgive. Yeah, I think that, you know, we our first, yeah, obviously it's something that is healthy, I think, for us, and it can cause, like, a root of bitterness in your heart will have physical manifestations over time. It's not going to be a, a healthy thing to hold on and to harbor that sort of bitterness. Uh, I think from the Bible standpoint also, you have the idea that God is a God who is always merciful. He's extending mercy to those, and yet at the same time, he provides in his Son the, the justice that is deserved. And he promises that at the end of the ages he's going to come and right all the wrongs. That's right. And that's the only foundation that can actually allow us to forgive. And so a lot of people get really ruffled about the idea of a God of judgment, but the idea that God is the one who actually knows and will bring about judgment. Um, and justice. And justice right. is the one who, uh, that, that idea actually enables us to not seek it out ourselves and to extend, knowing that God is the one who is going to right all those wrongs yeah. at the end. And that's really important. I think also the idea that, and we're seeing this now, I think, play out in our world is at a societal level, a society that can't extend forgiveness to one another and that's just really out for their own individualism. Uh, those who can't actually, I mean, forgiveness involves suffering in many ways. It involves self-sacrifice, self-denial. and. There was a book written by uh, these sociologists called Amish Grace. I think it was turned into a movie. It was about the shooter who went to this Amish school and killed um, these young children and the, the outpouring of forgiveness by the Amish families on this shooter. I mean, they were there extending forgiveness and love like in their the family of the shooter's lives for a long period after that. And the world was like, this is incredible. But in the book, he's arguing, they argue that like our culture doesn't produce people like that anymore because we're all about self-actualization. But the gospel and what Jesus Christ uh, offers us, it changes our hearts, allows us to actually deny ourselves. And would you speak a little bit to that about how the gospel actually enables us to forgive? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. First is that Jesus is our example. That Jesus was utterly innocent, but was brutally arrested and whipped and accused of all sorts of things, and then put to death in a really horrible way, and even as that is happening, looks at the people who are doing it and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in his teaching, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are going to worship, which is like the most important thing you can do in that culture, if you're going to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, your brother has something against you, you stop you don't even take your gift and offer it. You go and are made right with your brother before you even come to worship God. 
So that's an astounding priority that's put on forgiveness. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus says that um, if you have something against someone, your responsibility instead of gossiping about it is to go um, and speak the truth and love to that person individually. So I think you see that and you see this whole idea that Jesus talks about of loving your enemies and praying for the people that persecute you. And that is the most radical thing about Christianity. And sometimes we wonder, why doesn't Christianity seem as powerful as it did in the days of the disciples? But I think in those times where Christians manifest that radical kind of forgiveness, that power shows right back up. If you go watch video reels of Martin Luther King Jr. in Alabama and the civil rights movement, praying for the people that are setting dogs on him, praying for the people that are turning fire hoses on him, or you go watch the bond hearing with Dylan Roof and the mother Emanuel victims as one after another, they come up and say, we forgive you, we are sinners like you, you need to meet Jesus. Um, you know, many of y'all will remember the eyes of the world turned to Charleston during that time and people were shocked and amazed at the same way in this Amish situation. Um, when we live that kind of forgiveness out, um, the culture pays attention. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously Jesus is teaching another place. He says, take the speck out of your own eye before you remove the speck of your brother's. I think that's a really, really important teaching. Uh, if I were to sum up the entire gospel into a phrase, it would be that you and I are far worse than we ever imagined. Uh, that's the indictment on all of us, is that we are actually incredibly guilty and deserving of judgment. And yet at the same time, we're more loved and forgiven and accepted than we ever dared hope. And that's what the cross is. The cross is the, uh, the proof of God's love and forgiveness, but also at the expense of justice on his son where he took that for us. And so what that does is it gives us two things that are absolutely essential for forgiveness. It gives us, one, humility, to know that we are actually far worse than we ever believed. You have to have humility to be able to extend that, to, to extend forgiveness to anybody. You, you can actually begin to see them, the other person, the, your enemy, as a fellow human being and yourself as capable of such a thing. Mm -hmm. But it also gives you the strength. It gives you strength to actually to move towards them without you know, hitting them over the head with justice in some ways, it, to, to speak the truth, but to not you know, take it out on them to seek revenge, to get even, but to, to invite them into the opportunity to experience their own wholeness, to, to turn from the wrong that they've done. Yeah. And so it gives you both the humility and the strength. And that's why I think the gospel and, and, and accepting that is what ultimately fuels and is the source for our ability to forgive others. Yes, and I think one of the most beautiful examples of that in the gospel is in the parable of the two sons or the parable of the prodigal son, which again, Jesus could have chosen any scenario. But in this story, he says the son basically says to the father, I wish you were dead because I want your money. And he gets the money, and he goes off, and, you know, in our culture would be, he goes to Vegas, gambles it all away, spends all the money in strip clubs, gets a social disease, you know, all that kind of stuff. Completely runs out of money, and then comes home because he's at the end of his resources. And it's so interesting, because in the parable, Jesus says the father is watching for the son to come back. And as soon as he sees the son starting to come toward him, the father runs to embrace the son. And in this culture, mm. older men had great dignity. They would never run in public. That would be like 
Queen Elizabeth running to meet you when you went to Buckingham Palace. Just didn't happen. So he goes, he runs, he embraces the son, and he doesn't say, you stupid idiot, I hate you, look at what you did, you ruined our family, blah, 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 blah. He says, no, he prepares the fatted calf, he gets the ring, he gets the cloak, and he brings him into the family. And Jesus is telling that parable to show what his attitude toward us is. And when we have received and understood the incredible mercy and generosity of that kind of forgiveness, how could we fail to forgive others? That's good. I think we probably have reached about our time. I'm curious how we're doing on questions. Where's uh, there's Colton? Colton? Yeah, we have quite a few. Okay, I've got I've got one key question. If you don't have enough, but no, we have plenty. Mary okay, great. Oh, there's Mary Hollis. I can't see you. I'm actually just Sweet. Thank you all for doing that, by the way. Does it work? Yep. Okay. All right. The first question with the most upvotes so far is, I've never been in a romantic relationship with another Christian. How does one cope with this type of loneliness from a biblical perspective? The question is, I've never been in a romantic relationship. Is that what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, with somebody who's... Christian? Well, I think that that is uh, a question that shows uh, some deep feeling, obviously, on that topic. And I think that there's really easy to have the sense of being left out and left behind um, in those feelings. But I think that the answer to that uh, which a lot of people might say that this is trite, but I, I really don't think that it is, is that uh, God's timing is not our timing. And so you never know when God may choose to bring that kind of relationship to you. Uh, and that in the meantime, we are to live deeply into fellowship with Christ and with his body. And uh, sometimes the church is not very good at providing that. Uh, but I think that, that that is what the answer to that is. And if we had more time, I would tell a wonderful story about a friend of mine who had that issue, and when she was 45, um, fell in love and had the most awesome marriage ever. But yeah. Yeah, another that's, time. That's really good, I think. The little bit that I would add would be, in, in some ways, it's just a lot of people long for a romantic relationship, and Christian, non-Christian. I think that's just where we are, and I think... When looking at Jesus, that he was never married. He was not less of a person in that. And he was a perfect human being, and yet never was married, never had sex. And I think that you're, what I would say to help you cope is not to give in just because it's hard. But as Brian said, lean into the church. Lean into other relationships and friendships. As we've talked about friendships so much here. Um, and know that you are a full person without being in that. And, and Jesus is the proof of that. Great question. Okay, next is, how would you defend yourself against an atheist that says God doesn't exist? I, I Yeah, you know, I wouldn't really feel the need to defend myself, I think, first of all. Like, I, um, yeah, that's, that's fine to his interpretation. I don't, you know, want to, I would disagree, obviously, but I would never really feel 
attacked and kind of on my heels. I think that what we see, uh, for me, the reason why I believe is that I think the I think the reality is everyone has faith on some level, and so you know Romans one talks about the idea that God has revealed Himself in the world, and we can see His character displayed. And so the very idea of like morality, for instance, I think points us to the fact that there's a God. Uh, why? I mean, the whole idea of you know things being wrong. Well, if there was no God, then why should you even care about that at all? Like, it's whereas I think so. For me, I, I, I'm saying a lot of different things here, but uh, one, I wouldn't feel like I would have to completely change his mind. I think. The Bible also says that everyone is without excuse, that they have, uh, they're actually suppressing what they know about God to be true in, in their hearts. And so that's ultimately between him and God. I think it's ironic that so many, at least at least a decade ago, the militant atheists were angry at the God they didn't believe in. It's like, why is this riling you up so much if you don't believe in this God? Uh, so, yeah, I, I would, first of all, try to, to love him. And if he invited my opinion, I would say, you know, here's the reason why I think things, uh, I'm going to let you say the great C.S. Lewis quote about, like, why he believes in Christianity, about the sun, you know, that one. Yeah, so Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe um, this in the sun, because not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. But I think, you know, part of the, part of the deal with that question is that, um, a lot of times, it depends on what your relationship with the person is like. I love talking to people like that because anybody that's genuinely seeking, I'd love to talk to. One of my favorite things to do is to study Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian um, with people because it is like the worst book ever. Um, if you want something that like makes Christianity look good, just look at Bertrand Russell's empty arguments. Um, but I think that a lot of people might quick answer to that would be very similar to Justin's that I believe everyone makes decisions based on the evidence that they see and that the evidence that I see makes me much more I think it takes much more faith to believe that there's not a God than to believe that there is one. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> very good question. Yeah. Okay, the next one says, God led me to forgive a person whose abuse still affects my life as trauma. I forgive them, but it's still painful. Have I forgiven them if I'm still healing? Yeah, that was the question I was going to bring up. The idea of, uh, the whole topic tonight was forgive and forget. So what if you're still experiencing, I'm assuming this question is talking about the level of pain, to, to still rec recall that pain, to still be affected by that pain, to still remember the incident even, is that evidence that you haven't forgiven them? Yeah, I would say that that was a very well-phrased question. And I think that the forgiveness does not mean that all of the pain has gone away or that the healing process has somehow instantly happened when you've reached that point of choosing to forgive. So I think that you can choose to forgive and you can experience the freedom of forgiveness while at the same time experiencing the healing that the Holy Spirit will work over time in your life. 
and sometimes you need additional resources to help you with that, like a good Christian counselor or a good prayer partner or something like that. But I think the fact that you still, I guess one caveat is you don't want to let whatever it was that happened be the defining principle of who you are. Because one of the things that Jesus says is that when we come to faith in him, we are a new creation and that the old has passed away and the new has come. So what Satan would want to do is to trap you in that experience and in that unforgiveness. But I think the way the question was phrased about moving toward healing, I think that sounds like a person is moving in the right direction and um, that can coexist with forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. I would say that forgiveness is not an event. It's not a one thing, one-time thing and then you're done. It's an ongoing process. I think the way I would answer the question that I posed, the idea of uh, not, of course, it's impossible to forget, I think, in some ways. And, and it says, you know, in the Bible, like, God remembers their sins no more. Well, he's God. He actually remembers everything, but that's a metaphor. And the idea that we are to forgive people, A, it's an ongoing thing. And this question is clearly by someone who's done a lot of incredibly hard work to acknowledge just how hurtful that was. And I would say, if you didn't feel anything, that's probably a sign that you've deadened your heart to this person. Like the idea of the opposite, like the, the greatest form of hatred of someone is apathy. When you're so deadened to them that you, you're so... Like, I've dismissed you so much, I won't let you affect me. That's, the I think, the worst form of hatred. And so by feeling the hurt and the pain, the key thing is what do you do with that? Are you going to extend revenge? Are you going to try to wish ill will upon this person? Are you going to hope their, for their unhappiness? Like, that would be, I think, an example of not forgiving them. But it's an ongoing event where we seek the mercy of God, where we extend uh, forgiveness by not holding it against them, um, but, but still longing for the restoration yeah. that, that we're waiting for in heaven. So there's a lot to that, but that was a, a really good and, and honest question. There's some great stuff in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, about that. Mm. What's next? What is your opinion on the death penalty? Yeah, that's great. Okay. Um, I think that there are um, very good theological arguments on both sides of that question. I think on the one hand, you can say that God is the author of life and that no human being has the right to take the life of another human being. You can also say that in scripture from the earliest time of the Old Testament, there is a hierarchy of punishment uh, under the law and that the taking of a life uh, requires the giving of a life as the penalty. Um, I think those are both biblical positions. Um, I think the, the American legal system um, has made all of that extremely complicated uh, and because it part of the reason for the death penalty in the Old Testament law is that it was it was a very certain consequence and so it had 
Uh, if you ever went to law school, you would learn about laws that have an interorum effect, which means they scare people into doing the right thing. If you know for certain if you kill someone that you're going to be killed, um, that may affect your conduct. Um, maybe it won't, heat of passion. Um, but there, you will find that there is not a consensus um, among Orthodox Christians who, who deeply trust scripture. There's not a consensus on that question. Yeah. The only thing I would add, I think, to that is the latter argument that you were talking about, the idea that um, because life is so important, and this is Genesis 9 when God commands us to Noah, uh, that anybody who takes a life, a life shall therefore be taken. That's not just this arbitrary thing that you now go and act revenge, but it's actually given to the hands of the state. Right. And that's actually really important because there is, this kind of gets at the nature of the, like the state versus the individual relationship. Yep. Uh, because it's never an individual taking the law into his own hands, but has God allowed the state uh, to enact justice in this way? And I think it becomes to the, what's the role of government and this sort of thing. And, yep. And this, this question certainly can get at the idea of like the corruption in the American legal system and um, criminal justice system, which I, I wouldn't want to gloss over just how messed up that is, too. So I, I would want to say all that, yeah. but that's all the time we have for that conveniently. <laughs> yes. So, uh, good. I want to be a Christian, but I don't feel like I love Jesus. What should I do? What an honest question. Yes. Um, I'm, I think that is a great thing to uh, be aware of. I think that uh, there are several things about that that could be ways of responding, but one of the things that I would say is that uh, there's a lot of truth in the old hymn that uh, was actually written as an Anglican hymn, but was always sung at Billy Graham Crusades um, that's called Just As I Am. Um, as just as I am without one plea. Uh, and I think the fact that your heart is cold toward Jesus doesn't mean that you shouldn't come to him. There could be a lot of reasons that your heart might be cold. Um, but if your mind is um, saying this is what I believe is true or I'm on the path to believing this is true, um, I think you go ahead and take that step of faith and in all honestly say, Jesus, my heart is cold. I don't feel love towards you, but I want to be a Christian. Um, that is really not unlike what happened to C.S. Lewis and his conversion, which will happen um, in this movie. You'll see that whole story portrayed. But he became intellectually convinced that Christianity was true, even though he didn't want to believe it. But he finally got to the point where he felt like the evidence was so strong that he had to embrace Christianity. And so he says, so I, on that night, I knelt in my room at the college and prayed the most reluctant and dejected convert in all of England. So, but over time, his heart warmed to where the love and passion um, that he felt for Jesus and for the gospel overwhelmed every other aspect of who he was yeah uh, I would say welcome to the club in some ways that we in my own heart I want to love Jesus more I think fundamentally it's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian just the way that this question's asked 
is you're not a Christian because you love Jesus, but you're a Christian because you realize how much he loves you. And so I think that that comes the more that you realize, and you know, you kind of have to, it's one of those things that you just, taking that step and walking in it and realizing your heart will be warmed over time. And yet you will still find yourself. I mean, I've been doing this now for uh, almost two decades and still very much aware of how much my heart loves other things besides Jesus all the time. Uh, and that's, yet I would still say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, Lord, help me in my unbelief, right? That's kind of what we're saying. But even the very nature of asking this question, I think you're on the right path. Like you're already, your heart is already warmed in some ways by wanting it, even though you realize there's a level of inconsistency there. And, you know, interestingly in the Gospels, Jesus, when he comes up to people, he doesn't say, love me. He says, follow me. Yeah. And as you follow him, that love will begin to grow. Great question. The next highest rated question is, what's your favorite beer and why? <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Easy answers. <laughs> oh, that's actually a really hard uh, question. All right, well, then I can, I can finally go. I'm okay. such a slow thinker that, Brian, I don't know if you notice this, but Brian always answers pretty much first because I have to formulate my thoughts. Otherwise, it's gibberish. So uh, mine... That is not true. That is actually true. So um, depends on the season for me. So, like, the cooler the season, the darker the beer. Right? I mean, it's just an absolute fact that that's the case. And so, Corona, obviously, my favorite meal of the entire year is a bunch of boiled peanuts that I've made myself with some watermelon and a Corona with lime, and I'm the happiest person in the world. Uh, usually right in the middle of May is when that comes out. So, um, yeah, we should do that. We should do that at the end of yeah. next semester. Yeah, yeah that'd be good. Um, I would say for me, it just it sort of depends on what mood I'm in. Sometimes it is rolling rock. Sometimes it's Stella, sometimes it's Cronenborg, so any of those. I like a good Christmas beer, too. So, like the, um, like the Christmas ales that they make seasonally, like those are just spectacular. We're going to do a Theology on Tap Christmas edition, by the way. This is, I think, this is our last one, right? No, it's not. November. No, no, Sorry, I don't no, know what day it yes. is. My wife's going to give birth anytime, so I don't know what time it is right now. But, um, yeah, so December, we will have a Theology on Tap Christmas edition which will be a lot of fun. Yes, stay tuned for that. So that was better than the Bitcoin question. So. <laughs> what was that? What do you do when you have forgiven someone over and over and you keep getting hurt? How do you forgive without setting yourself up to be hurt in the same way? Yeah, that's a question. That is a great question. And I think part of that, um, it's hard to say without knowing exactly what the situation is, but one of the things that very often goes along with the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation is figuring out how to establish appropriate boundaries um, in the relationship. And if there are, so, you know, just going back to that uh, money example, uh, if somebody continually doesn't pay you back, you just don't want to get in the situation of lending them money. And so whatever the transaction or emotional transaction is that leads to your being hurt, what you want to try to do is to arrange the circumstances so it is not possible for that transaction to keep happening. Um, that's not always easy. Um, sometimes that means you may need a counselor 
or a clergy person um, to help advise you in that. But I think continually setting yourself up to be taken advantage of or hurt is not what forgiveness means. Yeah, yeah. I would go back to part of part of forgiveness is actually giving them the good gift of like lovingly telling them the truth of what they did and inviting them to to apologize um, and to repent. I can't recommend this book enough. Like, part of why I'm bringing this right now is uh, he talks about forgiveness and love, but he then talks about three different contexts of relationships. So, like, this question is like, well, you know, what do I do if I keep getting hurt? Well, he says, okay, how do we love an evil person? How do we love a fool? And how do we love, like, a normal sinner? Those are kind of abstract categories, but if you look at the Bible, those are three kind of general categories of different kinds of people. And I would say how you respond if you keep getting hurt, well, the person could, I mean, like if you're in a marriage, if you're gonna keep getting hurt in a marriage and they're probably just a normal sinner. Now, how you would handle that and set boundaries or whatnot is gonna differ from like a person who's actually maybe a fool or, or perhaps really evil. So it really does depend on uh, the, the nature of the context and the, the person, so. Come check this book out afterwards, yeah. 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 Um, You're good. Sorry. You yeah. were talking about the difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. Um, does forgiveness always involve continuing in a relationship with that person? Or is that more a, I know you said something about reconciliation where it's going back to the relationship as it was. Um, do you believe that forgiveness always Yeah, good question. No, I think part of that's how I would define reconciliation is that you're restored in a relationship. Uh, it would be very foolish if you were in a relationship where the person has continued habitually over time to keep abusing you and stealing from you, and you can forgive and forgive and forgive, but if you don't draw the right boundaries, that would be really foolish to continue in such a relationship. Now, you should still, I think, the Bible tells us to forgive that person, but I don't think that it's wise to continue allowing them to steal money from you in that instance, I guess, in that, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Okay, yeah. All right. Since he did this, I'm not going I was thinking they were going to bring up, but okay. 
Uh, yes, you should forgive them. Uh, next question. That was good. Uh, <laughs> now, I do think there's there's a larger question under there of how do you how do you deal with living under political situations where you vehemently disagree with policies that are going on, um, and I think that that is not really an issue so much of forgiveness uh, as it is an understanding of um, other scriptural principles about what the role of government is, um, what the responsibility of citizens is, all of those kinds of things. So I don't, I don't think that you need to go through a forgiveness exercise every time there's a political decision that you disagree with. Um, Wait, say that last part again? What did you that say? you don't need to go through a forgiveness exercise every time there's a political decision you disagree with. Interesting. Yeah. At least not audibly, but maybe in your heart. You might need to do that. I wouldn't, wouldn't totally write that off. Yeah, I think that you're referring to Romans 13 where it's the responsibility of Christians is to obey, obey the emperor, Paul says, like to honor the, the leaders that God has ordained in our government. And I think that's one of the things. We've seen it on both political sides of the spectrum. Christians, you know, the, the not my president sort of thing. Well, actually, um, what we what would be a great Christian witness is to humbly submit to the governing authorities, I think, would be a really simple answer that I'm going to leave there. And you could also say pray for your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And pray, that's why we pray for leaders in authority yeah. on Sundays, yeah. Good question. How do you engage your boyfriend or girlfriend with your faith? when they are only mildly engaged with theirs? Yeah. You're going to make me do it, aren't you? You're going to make me go first. <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, Don't make me do it. So I think that uh, that is a really great and profound question. And I love the fact that someone is aware of that and thinking about it. Um, and I would say that the very first thing to do is to pray, uh, not just um, for the person you're in a relationship with, but to, um, if you have a prayer partner or other close people in your life, to ask them to pray as well. Um, and then to try to unpack what sorts of things um, the person that you're in the relationship with, what kinds of things um, in their faith journey have been meaningful to them, have brought them joy um, in their faith journey, and then what things have brought you joy in your faith journey and try to figure out some ways to plan some of those into your time together. Um, also maybe to find another couple where both the um, guy and the girl are deep in their faith and are people that you enjoy being with um, and that can be a way to help go deeper there as well. Another great thing to do is suggest reading uh, a good Christian book together um, Sometimes that's less threatening than doing a Bible study together, um, but reading a good Christian book together and talking about it can be a great thing to do. Yeah, that puts the kind of the issue not so much between you and the other person, but you're doing something together which unites you, mm -hmm. and you can easily have good conversation from there. I would add to that, uh, you know, so uh, honestly, like you, you want to be honest about it, you want to be gentle, yet strong enough to actually 
be real. I mean, if you're dating, you should actually, you're not going to agree about everything. So don't try to just hide issues. That's, it's going to come out eventually. So be honest about the differences that you do have. But approach it with two things. Approach it with care and curiosity. And if you can do that, uh, in addition to what, what Brian's talking about, I think that would be really helpful to have some of these conversations. Care and curiosity and hopefulness. And hopefulness, yeah. yeah. Assuming the best in the other. I mean, if they're not as interested, but yeah, those, those are some good things maybe to get you started. Okay, I think one more? Yeah, I think this is our last one. And it is, how does Christianity relate to Mormonism? Okay. So, uh, Mormonism is a much later uh, offshoot of, offshoot might not be exactly the right word, Mormons would say it's an offshoot probably of the Christian faith, but um, it involves special revelation that Mormons believe came um, from Moroni uh, to Joseph Smith, and there are a lot of things that are very different in that special revelation than the, the biblical faith. And so um, there are issues about who Jesus is, there are issues about the Trinity, there are issues about what human beings are, um, there are issues about ultimate destiny, um, there are issues about the meaning and purpose of life. Um, so there, That's a lot. There are <laughs> a lot of issues. A lot of times Mormons generally are very nice, lovely, moral, kind people. Um, but their belief structure is really not anywhere close to Christianity for people that are serious about Mormonism. So, Yeah, I think anytime we talk about another religion, it, I think you would want to try to say that w we can talk about differences in it, but how we approach people of different faiths is tolerance, which is an idea that we don't actually really do these days, but we can disagree and still get along, but we can actually talk about the disagreement. And so that's kind of what, yeah, uh, you know, Christianity, for instance, says that the last, uh, you know, the book of Revelation, which was the end of the Bible, that is the final revelation that God's given in, his, in the Word. Well, that's very different than what Mormons believe, is that they believe that God has revealed himself in the Book of Mormon, which was in like the 1800s, I think, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. So long span, different continent, like all that kind of interesting. The Trinity is probably the biggest one. So all Christians agree on that God is three persons in one God, um, and, and I think that is one of the biggest disagreements you'll see is that they would say that Jesus was created, that he was a person who maybe became God. Uh, Christianity says that Jesus was really the son of God, was eternally God, took on flesh at the incarnation, became a man. Yep. Two of the biggest differences there. Great questions. Yeah. This is so much fun. Thank you again for coming. We're going to be around for a long time. I'm probably going to watch the World Series game here in a little bit. Um, feel free to check out some of the books. I've got an article up here as well that I thought was really good. Uh, and feel free to hang out and chat. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks. That's right. And remember, this is uh, now on Apple Podcasts, so if you have friends that are in other places that you think might enjoy this, please share the link with them.